never kneel again. I'll never go through your church doors. The golden rule is for the fool. I hollered your name. No one came. Thy kingdom has come. My will was done. On earth there is a war. And your heaven is just a game. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Larry Winters joins us again today in part two of our conversation on the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Larry is a Marine and Vietnam veteran. And um, as you may have heard in part one, has had uh, just multiple experiences in different occupations and different experiences in life. Some very painful, others more lighthearted. But what we want to do today is uh, get into the uh, therapy end of things that Larry has experienced and is experiencing and, and hear more about his writing Larry, we're going to do that, but I want to, I would be remiss if I didn't at the top extend uh, my thanks to uh, uh, someone that you spoke with some time ago by the name of Doug Sandberg. Doug is the host of a show entitled Let's Talk Vets that airs on WJFF, that's 90.5 Radio Catskill in uh, Jefferson, New York. Doug had a couple of lengthy conversations with Larry and was kind enough to send me a copy of those, which I thoroughly enjoyed listening to. And Doug is uh, an Air Force veteran. And, uh, you know, Larry, I was, uh, part of what I enjoyed about your conversation with him is he had just a wonderful way of listening to you. And I've always believed that any interviewer, if you want to say a host or whatever, one of the best skills they can develop is just trying to learn how to listen to what people are saying and, and and really hear the message. We talked a little bit about that in the first part of our conversation here on the podcast. Let's pick up now, if you don't mind, with um, your career as a therapist. For one thing, uh, you mentioned it took you back to Vietnam. I believe that was in 1994. What was that circumstance? Well, in 1994, I had become a, uh, I think at that point, a part-time therapist at a place called Four Winds Hospital. And I was, I think, working three or four days a week. And I was hired by the man that owned the hospital, who was Sam Clagsburn. 
I came in for an interview with Sam because my best friend, Peter Pitsley, was working there already. And he said, you want to interview this guy, Sam? He might be a, somebody you'd want to hire. So I had an interview with Sam. And Sam is a Holocaust survivor that walked across Europe with his family. He and I somehow kind of hit it off in our conversation. And he said, I'm going to hire you. If you don't want to be a therapist, maybe you could be the buildings and grounds guy. Because <laughs> he knew, he realized that I was also a carpenter. And so that's when I started. That was probably in one of, in the 80s at some point. But Sam became a close friend over the years. I met with him regularly. I became part of a Bible group, a Torah study group, a Jewish Bible group that met once a month. And the people from uh, probably 10, 12 people who were facilitators and therapists and doctors in the hospital came to that group. And we took 10 years to read Genesis. And in the Jewish uh, religion, there's something called the Midrash. The Midrash is used to allow people to have their own interpretation of these Bible stories. So your own life experience could become part of your feedback in that group. It was stimulated. You might role reverse, for instance, with Jeremiah or, or whatever biblical character is doing something. And so that became very interesting. There's a lot of creativity in 10 years that came out of that group. We went to Israel together as a group, which was partially funded by the hospital. So Sam was an important friend. I got an email that came to me from West Haven VA. West Haven VA is in uh, uh, Connecticut. And connected in some ways to Yale. And this man... David Johnson put out this email to people. I'm going to I'm going to take veterans and healthcare workers or healthcare workers back to Vietnam, and we're going to spend two weeks in Vietnam, going from one healthcare facility to another. The name of the group that organized it for him was People to People, which was created by Eisenhower to bring professionals from one country to visit with professionals in another country. So I went up to Sam's office. I showed him the letter and I said, listen, I don't have a, I, I can't afford to do this. Could the hospital send it? He said, the hospital can't afford it. And then he pulled his checkbook out and he wrote me a check for half of it out of his personal account. There is a way that may have been the kindest, most healing thing that was ever done for me. It was the kindest and most healing thing that was ever done for me. And uh, I would say that probably is what put me on course for when I went back and when I came back. And I dedicated myself to Sam Glagsburg for the rest of my career.
having done that, I got very good at what I did. I made a really good living at some point. And I was in demand. But that had to do with what I just told you. And it's, um, I'm a little moved because I know Sam was, he hasn't passed yet, but he's, he's pretty elderly. And I haven't seen him in a while. But he, uh, that was a remarkable opportunity that was created for me. And I went back to Vietnam. In that aura that was created for me. And then a whole story about the latter part of my book, The Making and Unmaking of a Marine, is, is about returning to Vietnam and what experiences I had there. Was it what you hoped it would be? And for that matter, what did you hope the trip might put into your life? Well, honestly, I hoped that it would be the light bulb that came on, on and I just switched the light switch on. That didn't happen. <laughs> I, that's what I wanted. That's what I, I wanted to come back, remade, forgiven, all feeling good, on on a new course. I had a big idea that I wanted to do create a conference where I was going to invite all those protesters of my age and all the Vietnam veterans together, and the Vietnamese veterans and to have some world conference. I started to try to work on that when I came back. I got in touch with all the most important people I knew and began to try to create something, but I just, I hadn't gone far enough to be able to make that happen in myself. I couldn't manage it. I hadn't finished whatever process that I'm still trying to finish, but it definitely made a, a remarkable shift for me and i began writing the book and you also began your career of uh, uh counseling people yeah and i became more and more and in that hospital setting they asked me to be the veteran uh the person that treated veterans in the hospital and our hospital is fairly close to west point so I not only treated veterans, I was treating a lot of young men and women that were struggling in West Point. So towards the end of my career, I had a lot of West Pointers coming in and out. What were they struggling with? Uh, there was a lot that they were struggling with. They were struggling about going to the wars that were currently going on. They didn't want to go. They were struggling with sexual abuse that was happening because there's women there. So we get a lot of women that were sexually abused. There were, there were lots of suicides going on in West Point. There's an underbelly. There was a lot of drug use. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in that place that most people don't know about. Uh, it's a high-pressured place to go. You know, in the uh, first part of our conversation, you mentioned uh, the essential element of gaining someone's trust. I'd be interested to know how do you go about that? Uh, for instance, as a counselor or, or a therapist, uh, as a veteran comes into your office for whatever time it is, first, second, third, fourth, what is the process 
that you use to try to gain their trust so they can feel comfortable talking to you about things that they may not have talked to uh, any other human being about. There's one modality that I have been interested in. It goes contrary to what your training is as a therapist. The therapist is not supposed to tell anything about themselves. You're supposed to keep your own business uh, in the bag. I don't buy that. I think there's some business you need to keep in the bag, especially if you haven't worked it out. But if you've worked it out and you've completely looked at it and you're familiar with it and you're comfortable with it, you can tell things about yourself that will create rapport almost instantly because they're authentic. And we know when people tell the truth and we know when people are behaving in an authentic way. And that's what creates trust. I got comfortable doing that. And I used it. I had 14 people in a group and I had one hour to work with them. And because of the nature of the healthcare system was they got very little questioning or and people investigating why did they want to kill themselves because that's the criteria to get into a hospital why whatever the criteria was for them to get into the hospital needed to be talked about but most of the social workers were basically didn't have enough time to do that and they had to figure out how do we do discharge planning how do we make sure that the, that the family and the community is going to be able to take people back and so a lot of it was logistics that were getting trying to get worked out. And so when I got them, I had five minutes to figure out why they wanted to take their own life. Why they were so angry that they were going to do self-murder. And I was pretty good at letting them know that I'll, I'll listen to it and I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I can about that and we'll take a look at it together. And so when you're put in those circumstances, you learn how to do it. And I was, you know, I ran three groups a day. I worked four days a week and I ran two men's groups outside the hospital. And I saw probably 15 or 20 clients privately. So I had a I had a pretty good practice. Did your practice help with your own issues that you were striving in some way to reconcile? Absolutely. Particularly, um, you know, when I got when it became more public, I did eventually. I went and started to do some work towards the end of my career with Intersections International down in New York City. We created the Veteran Civilian Dialogue. The way I got that work was to go down there on Veterans Day and said to them, basically, uh, I'm here because I have something to tell you about war. And if you listen to me, that will help me heal. And that became the premise that we developed that program. That it was going both ways. What did the civilians, it was the veteran civilian dialogue. What was the civilian part here? What did that contribute? Well, the civilian part, what the difficulty is in the, in the treatment of veterans 
is that veterans are considered to be the client, the patient. So if you're a therapist to clients and patients, you've got a, a, a hierarchy going before you even start the conversation. You're less than, you're a patient, you've got a diagnosis, you've got a problem, you've done something wrong, you're not doing something, you know, there's, there's an issue. So whenever you create a event for veterans, it's because you're going to help them. No one wants to be put in that category. That's why they take the DSM, PTSD. That's why they take the PTSD and keep that and let the D go because they don't want the disorder. I, uh, any number of people you put into war situations are going to evolve with PTSD. And every one of them will evolve with some with moral injury if it's an unjust war. So there, there are real issues that human beings are having normal reactions to. And uh, I became interested in the latter part of my work in something called moral injury. And that's where all my focus has been pretty much since, since then. I think PTSD's primary issue it's not the trauma that people went through, veterans anyway. It's more likely the things that they did that conflicted their moral ethics. As a therapist, I've often wondered, are, are there things that you begin to see or sense in someone that's visiting with you that indicate to you that that individual is starting to... Uh, accept themselves or to uh, uh, forgive themselves or kind of whatever word might seem the most appropriate here. What are, what are the indications to you that someone's getting better? If that's the right phraseology and excuse me, if it is not. Well, it, it's, it's everything. It's what they look like, what they sound like, how they entered the office, how they look at you, whether they make eye contact, how they speak about themselves, how they speak about others. I mean, it's, it's, it, you're taking everything in just like we all do. If I meet you, I'm paying attention to everything that you're doing. You know, whether you're looking at me, whether you got a grin on your face, you know, whether you seem to have an attitude in your voice. Um, so there isn't specifically one thing. It's sort of taking in the whole. And if you know that person, you see some evolution. You can sense it. You feel it. And a lot of it has to do with how they will engage with you or not. I don't think that there is a specific thing that I would recognize that you wouldn't. I can think of questions that would provoke sure. the, that to figure it out. And I have a lot of access. And having done this so many times, I could predict what you're not doing and talking about simply because I've done it so much. And so when I give, when they hear me ask these questions, they say, well, how do you know that? I so I could have said, well, because like, I've talked to 10,000 people <laughs> about a similar thing. I'm making a guess at it, believe it or not. <laughs> what generally are folks that come to see you or came to see you and your previous experiences? What are they looking for the most here? Peace of mind, some kind of solace, or do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I, I think, as I said, I have a different point of view than the hospital. I have a different point of view than many treaters. It depending on what you went through uh, in your experience, whether it's in your household, whether you went to war, if there's some kind of an event that occurred in your life, how you're processing that or not. Uh, I think almost always in one way or another has a moral issue connected to it. If a, if a person is abused in their home, sexually abused, physically abused, if they're abused in any kind of work situation, uh, there's just all kinds of abuse in the world. There usually is a moral component. And if you were raised like me, I went to Sunday school, I was in the Cub Scouts, I was in the Boy Scouts. I was told over and over in school and in church, I needed to, you know, thou shall not kill. Uh, thou shall do, tell the truth. I knew the Boy Scout and honor it by heart. I have all of these things that are being told to me over and over again about how I should form my life. With the moral guidelines and those things sink in, especially when they're told to us when we're young. And when they become in conflict and we don't have a way to figure them out or process them or have someone help us with those issues, they become, you know, places that lots of behaviors grow out of. And they're usually negative behaviors. As angry as a man is, is as frightened as a man is. And if you understand that, then I have dealt with endless amount of enraged men. I was an enraged man. I can be an enraged man. And until you figure out what drives most of that enrage, is to keep people away from seeing how frightened you are because nobody wants to be near a man who's angry. They give you big distance. They, they don't get near you. When you begin to understand that, both in yourself and in others, you get some new guidelines that you can begin to consider. You know, from so much of what you've told us, Larry, I get the feeling that your profession is also your vocation in some ways. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why I'm talking to you, mm -hmm. why I'm willing to continue to do this. And I'm 72 years old, closing <laughs> on 73 after mitral valve prolapse surgery, uh, after a brain tumor. Yeah. So what, in your life were some of the indicators that things were changing for the better for you in terms of the issues that you faced coming back from Vietnam with? Well, shortly after I got back from Vietnam, I got married to my wife, my current wife, Elise. And it's the first relationship I was in that I chose. Excuse me for interrupting. This is shortly after the second trip. I mean, the, uh, the yep. trip back to Vietnam. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yep. 
and previous marriages and relationships, I hadn't really sought the person. It was, you know, it happened. <laughs> it didn't put any thought in it. It, uh, it was uh, sort of, you know, falling in love and not giving yourself any time to see if that's going to last and then get married or, you know, create some permanent relationship. And so I spent a long time with my current wife before we got married. We went through my father's death. We went through a number of different life events. We went into therapy. We did a number of things to try to make sure that we were in good communication. And um, she also, her father was a veteran. So she had a relationship with a man who was a veteran dad which I think gave her a perspective that other people that I was connected with that hadn't had and I was eventually beginning to mature and had gone through these experiences which accumulated in me being able to have more self-worth have more self-esteem also helping people that was my major job, and I got good enough at it that I was getting consistent feedback from both the people and the administration that I was working for. And um, my self-esteem began to develop. And I was going around teaching, and I, I had other things that I began doing, and I began writing, writing also quite a central part of this because I was trying to figure out, well, how did I get here? Where did I go? Where did I start? Where did I go? And where am I now? And when I, I learned that writing is a meditation for me to figure out how to articulate what is actually going on inside of me, which I can't, even if it's, if it's going on right now, I will not be good at articulating it to you. But if I've written about it and thought about it and edited it and look at it, I can sort it out so it becomes not only articulate to you, but to me. Yeah. And uh, that became a really central factor. You know, and, and when I went to college, the first year I went to college, uh, I ran into an English teacher who said, in that class where spitballs were being thrown, he said, write poetry. And he said, if the, if the lines are horizontal, write across them. <laughs> and he uh, read what I wrote, and all it was all about the war. That was the beginning. And I hated the class. I mean, the kids in the class, but I liked him. And uh, that was the beginning. And uh, I would turn in poetry every week to him. And he'd highlight it, look at it, support me. And um, it, became, it became the medication that I've used ever since. It's amazing how an experience like that is, it's life shaping at the same time that it's unforgettable, that relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And for our purposes, 
it could make a wonderful segue here if you'd be willing to read another of your works. I, is there something that uh, it doesn't have to, of course, you can choose whatever you like, but if there's something that illustrates some of what we've been talking about, uh, which is a myriad of subjects, uh, please feel free. Well, there is this poem. I don't know whether it fits, but I, it, it somehow covers a lot of turf. It's called Your Heaven is Just a Game. You may or may not have listened to it and what I sent you. Yes, but in I fact, I, I did. And I, it's it's even in my notes. I was hoping you would pick that one, but I, I didn't want to feel like I was uh, tilting my hand here. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, it's a, it, it's a marvelous statement of sadness and remorse, if you would. Yeah, I, but tilt the hand anytime because I could okay. use it. I, I am overwhelmed with what I've got in front of me, and I could use your guidance. Sure. Okay. Your heaven is just a game. For 18 years, I kneeled by my bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Should I die before I wake? I pray the Lord my soul to take. Went to Sunday school. Said the pledged allegiance to the flag. Followed the golden rule. Showed up for Boy Scouts. Was told over and over, thou shall not kill. Prayed. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. At 18 in boot camp learned how to forget from where I came, how to shoot and laugh, how to kill without blame. For 18 years I raised my hand to my heart, and Boy Scouts, my three fingers to my brow, with Moses' words still in my head, I prayed to God to quiet my fears. Then Uncle Sam sent me to use my skills. So I did what he said. I shot my gun to kill. Then I realized someone was dead. Since I came home from war, I couldn't get the battle out of my head. I'd been, I'd be a half a man if I didn't slay. I tried to walk away from death, but found I'm half a man anyway. When I came home, you wouldn't look at me, but pinned hero ribbons on my chest. Now I roam this land, a man in a race, trying to find my own burying place. Because of war, I'll never kneel again. I'll never go through your church doors. The golden rule is for the fool. I hollered your name, no one came. Thy kingdom has come, my will was done. On earth there is a war and your heaven is just a game. Thank you for reading that. I, uh, I was struck by that. The uh the obvious emotions and, and um, certainly uh, there's anger and, and uh, but there's that element of regret. Is that, 
have you experienced in your life and have you seen in the lives of others the the element of loss, uh, maybe loss of innocence or um, in, in many cases, is that prevalent among veterans that have uh, served? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, if you particularly if you're in war, it's, you know, the first thing that goes when you see the rules that you live by all disappear pretty quick. Mm -hmm. When you're painting figures on a helicopter, putting little conical hats on a helicopter and those are people's lives. When you realize that it takes very little bit, just a little bit to kill people, you're in another zone. You've given up all of those rules that you learned. Or you not necessarily give them up, but they got changed. You get to see what human beings are really capable of. You realize that everyone around you today, if the circumstances are right, will enter that same zone that you were in. You get an insight about living and life that most people don't get unless they go through trauma of some kind or go through some difficulty where it is revealed who we really are, who we can really become. So it's, a, you know, it's a, I don't think there's anyone that's not. There are people that don't process this. They to hide it. They go shove it in the corner. They put it in the sea bag, throw it under the bed, put it in the footlocker, you know. Put it out in the back of the garage or in the basement. <laughs> I've had probably plenty of locations where I go uh, to get away. You know, it's interesting. I think we've all heard that for every action, there's an equal reaction. And I let me put it in this form of a question. The, the actions that were required of us in uh, combat in many cases, and, and perhaps even in some where combat wasn't involved. But anyway, those actions and, and what it required of us. What about the equal reaction? And I'm talking here about the recovery. Have you found in your experience that there is um, an equal force that individuals can use in a variety of methods to recover from their experiences and to, uh, to find a hopeful life, to find a life that is gratifying again and, and um, a part of which is discovery in a positive sense? Yeah, I, I think what we're leaving out or what I'm leaving out maybe is part of it. And that is, is that camaraderie, protecting each other, having friendships that are so deep because they're involved in whether keeping the die next to you alive, listening to people who are really, really frightened in the deepest way in a bunker when there's mortars coming in what they have to say, what they want to say, and what they, you know, what they express. Being in a team of people that is trying to stay alive together. Uh, there are other aspects to this that I haven't mentioned. It's much easier to talk about the difficulties than it is about the connections that you make. There are people I make connections with that I just, you know, uh, I loved. Mm-hmm actually and you know I, 
that that is that's a piece of this equation that needs to be highlighted a little bit at least mm-hmm. that it isn't you make you learn these painful things but you learn them with people next to you and some people next to you pretty much feel the way you do about it a lot of the men that were around me felt pretty much the way I'm talking they had nowhere to express it we were locked in a, a, a land that we didn't want to be in we're locked in circumstances we don't have any can't make any decisions about but somebody else is telling us what to do I have something that uh, I hope is appropriate to share with you sort of along those lines that sense of camaraderie that uh, and bond it's uh, remarkable how it exists between servicemen and women I've made personally made three trips to the Vietnam Memorial, the most recent, and I may have shared the story before with uh, Mike Orban and the piece that we did, but excuse me for repeating myself, but um, the last trip I made was part of what we here call the uh, honor flight, where uh, veterans go out to Washington, D.C., and one of the stops that we make is the Vietnam Memorial, and I have spent years grieving over the loss of certain comrades, and uh, in all three of those instances, I've placed my hands on the wall and I've been overcome and uh, sobbed. But interestingly, um, on the last visit, uh, which was about three years ago, I leaned forward into the wall and uh, felt it happened to be a partly sunny day and I could feel that warmth from that black granite. And I spiritually felt myself being pushed back from the wall by the spirit of those whose names are on the wall. And um, I could hear a voice. I'm speaking spiritually here. I could hear their voices saying, you know, Bob, you've been carrying this stuff long enough. We appreciate the fact that uh, you've grieved the way you have, but it's all right. We're okay. Would we have liked to live to 19 and 20? You bet. But we didn't. But it's time for you to stop carrying that. You know what you can do? The best you can. And I... um, felt an enormous sense of relief from that. And that's why I, um, when you were talking about comradeship, et cetera, it reminded me of that. And it reminded me (laughs) of one of the main reasons why we wanted to chat with you is because of the experience that you have had with so many different veterans at so many different points on their journey and to um, remind us that there are many people out there who have served, who are now uh, doing all they can to make a new life. And, uh, and of course you're part of that. Well, 
uh, that, that story just brings some tears to my eyes. I've been there myself, and I understand exactly what you're saying. I think it's a beautiful thing that that happened for you. And I think that that's the example that you're asking me to tell you about. Um, and I, I've given you some ideas of where it happens. Yeah. But the wall is powerful. I remember the wall and being one of those guys early who thought an Asian woman is designing the wall. Oh God, I tried to, I was trained to kill Asian people. And thank God I got rid of that and balanced that out, you know. But there was so much residue left over from that business. that uh, It takes a lifetime to sort it out and put it away and balance it see people see that that's what creates more war <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well stated the um you are involved with a, a warrior writers group i think is the right title and uh, i want to we have a few minutes left here i want to touch on on your ongoing endeavors there was one other thing, the Black Peace Eagle Productions that you're doing, kind of a multi-image, uh, multimedia presentations that you're involved with. Uh, so you, I believe you mentioned you're 72. Uh, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound to me as if you're slowing down there, Larry. And do you plan on continuing these activities uh, until you literally cannot anymore? Probably. I mean, I, I see them as. Uh... It's just the continuation of the, my own healing process. Um, when you add the element of creativity, which is in writing, which is in making these videos, um, it transforms for me the difficulties that are in those stories, the difficulty that's in the writing, into something that is an art form. That's something that will attract people to look at it for other reasons than, than it's just a, 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 to be shocked or whatever people watch difficulty. And, and the, there's, a, there's a, a deep sort of you kept referring to spiritual. I think that this business, in, until it becomes spiritual in your mind, in your life, you are with less tools to be able to function. Now, spiritual is an open word. Uh, you can attach it to religion. You can attach it to whatever you want. But it's at a deeper level. It's taking these things at a deep level, a life and death level. We learned about life and death as young men. We learned a lot about life and death. That life and death lesson will continue the rest of our lives to be there to learn from, there to, to figure out. And I'm at this stage in my life, it's on my, and then during this pandemic, it's on my mind all the time. And I worked in front of 14 people that wanted to kill themselves and I confronted them directly in their face. Why are you wanna do this? because I had become very familiar with death. You weren't scaring me out of the room because you wanted to kill yourself. I spent 13 years, 13 months 
figuring I wasn't coming home. I I am not. I created a dialogue with death. I created a relationship with death. I had a lot of talks with death. And did I figure it out? No. But I got a dialogue going. <laughs> and I'm going to have a dialogue with you. You don't want to. You don't want to live. You're going to have to tell me about it. And they're going to have to tell me about it so you can convince me that you are looking at it and that you're not killing yourself because you want to, you're enraged with the person that's going to find you dead. And if that's what it is, then we need to look at why you're in with the person that you want want to find you dead. It's just a piece of what kind of thing that could go down. I want to move to uh, wrapping up this segment of our conversation, but uh, if there's something you want to touch on before I, I close formally, I want you to do that. And I'll also extend an invitation to you. I think that, uh, you know, there's, there are many other subjects that we could speak about. And, and uh, at, at some point, I'd love to be able to visit with you again. Uh, it doesn't have to be as elaborate as a, a two-part thing, but it can be whatever we want it to be because after well, all, it's a podcast. So. There is something I feel like I need to, to put in in here. Sure. And I don't know where you want to put it, but it took place on the trip back to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We, were, uh, we were in the Coochie Tunnels. We came out of the Coochie Tunnels. We were visiting down in there in the tunnels. All got on the bus and we were headed back to where we were staying in uh, Ho Chi Minh City. And um, we stopped at a cemetery, a Vietnamese cemetery, where soldiers were buried. Vietnamese soldiers were buried. And this is titled Vietnam Cemetery Worker at the Viet Cong Memorial. I called to you, come here. I have something for you. You mumbled. I called again. You mumbled again. You looked away and spoke clearly. I know, come here. I wanted to give you money. You who takes care of my enemy's graves. But you turned away, both of us knowing it could never be enough. What was the title of that, Larry? Vietnam Cemetery Worker at Viet Cong Memorial. Thanks for reading that. I want to uh, thank you for participating with us and sharing all that you did today. Uh, it, uh, Really, it was a powerful conversation. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Bob. It's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit. I felt like you did a lovely job. I felt comfortable. I feel appreciated. I feel like my own healing moved on just a little bit. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity for both, from both you and Mike. Absolutely. Larry, thanks for joining us today. 
We've been visiting with Moraine and Vietnam veteran Larry Winters from his home in New Paltz, New York. Our thanks to Mike Orban for recording our conversation. Minnie Kane is our editor. The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is made possible by grants from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation and the Wisconsin Energies Foundation. For Aaron and Mike, this is Bob Bach. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.